Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. Maybe only 10 to 20% of teams, if that, clear the course. Most of the rest of the rankings come down to who makes the best decisions about their day and can get through as much of it in the best way with the best nav decisions as they can and finish. And that means most teams are out there for the full time, close to the full time. You get at least 20 hours of racing in, but a lot more teams are going to get close to 30 hours of racing. Okay. You people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Welcome back, listeners. Episode number 69 of The Dark Zone, June 2023. We are joined by Chris Yeager, who is the RD for the Nationals, being held this year in Vermont in September, and Michael Garrison, the Executive Director of the United States Adventure Racing Association. They come on to give a sneak peek conversation about the Nationals course, all those logistics. So we are glad that you are here Two quick shout-outs to our sponsors and friends. Mark Harris, Margo Harris, EnabledTracking.com. Does a great job for all your race tracking needs. They'll be at Nationals. Be sure to check them out, EnabledTracking.com. And a bit of a shout-out to an aspiring part of the adventure racing community, AdventureRacingInsider.com. Jeff O'Connor doing his best over there to bring you the media the video, all the cool things that happen during races. Be sure to check out Jeff's website. A good partner and friend to the Dark Zone, Jeff is. We're glad that you're here. Hope you're getting ready for nationals. Hope you're enjoying your spring and summer racing right around the corner. Holy cow, we're in the throes of the season. Enjoy the episode. Keep training. Go get them. All the best. I'd like to also mention the Dark Zone's charity partner, Ascend Athletics. We are proud to support their mission to empower young women through mountaineering-based leadership training and community service. All of our listeners are encouraged to visit ascendathletics.org to learn more about Ascend and their work in helping to develop leadership and resiliency in young women in Pakistan and Afghanistan through fitness, mental health, community service, and mountaineering. Please note that Ascend pays nothing for this mention. We just love the work that they do and are happy to spread the word. Be sure to check out their website for some upcoming activities that anyone can get involved in. Now sit back and relax and enjoy your sneak peek into USARA Nationals. Welcome to the Dark Zone and Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. Today we are joined by two people, Chris Yeager of the Green Mountain Adventure Race Association, also the race director for the 2023 USARA Nationals, and Michael Garrison, who's the executive director the United States Adventure Racing Association. They're on the dark zone today to talk a bit about the race, a bit about the area, to talk about what racers can expect. It's been a great lead up to this episode. We are excited that the uh, Nationals are going back to the East Coast. They had a great West Coast experience last year. And the dark zone is very happy to be the uh, voice for the audience when it comes to Nationals, which is the pinnacle, the top, the, the, the point of the spear for the 2023 season. So Chris and Garrison, welcome to the Dark Zone. We're glad that you're here today. Thank you, Brian. Super excited to be here. Great stuff. Great. I mean, super excited is the way to go, Chris, right? Nothing beats adventure racing. Best thing in the world. Um, Garrison, we'll come to you in a little bit. If you want to talk a bit high level about nationals, that's fine. But we know what the, what the listeners want. They want to hear about the course. They want to hear about what's out there. And obviously, Chris is the race director. Can't give the whole thing away, nor should he. If he does, folks, it's going to edit it out. Tough luck. But Chris is going to talk a bit today about the course and high-level stuff. The floor is yours, Race Director Yeager. Tell us all about the race. Oh, my goodness. Fantastic. Yeah, I know if I'm a racer right now, uh, ears are wide open, trying to pick up every nuance. I've been doing this a long time. I don't think I've let any early details slip in quite some time. I'm going to try not to do that today as well. 
So those of you who have raced in New England before, those of you who have raced with GMA Ray before, you can expect a typical New England style course. The woods will be thick. Very little will be flat. Biking will be on all sorts of different terrain. And we have lots of options for the paddle, ranging from rivers with very little water to big, wide open lakes and everything in between. So one thing I'd say for folks who are curious about GMARA is you can go on our website and read pretty detailed race write-ups for all, almost all of our past events. A couple of the early ones don't have it, but you can see more than 30 races worth of descriptions. You can see the types of things we put teams through, um, how often the transitions occur, how many times do we switch things up during the race, what were some of the creative events we did, et cetera. Nationals is going to be the Nationals version of what GMARA does. So what that means for all of you, and, and pay attention to these words, 90 plus percent of the trekking will be off trail. I'm a firm believer that adventure racing, the best courses, the best treks don't involve running down trails, don't involve hiking up trails. They involve navigation in woods, gaining and losing elevation, um, all those good things, um, route choices, navigation decisions, sections with points you can get in any order. All those kinds of things are things we we use often, we're known for, and are definitely a place to focus. Uh, you look back through our past events on uh, biking, nationals will be no exception. You will be biking on almost every piece of terrain you can think of from technical single track, um, remote Vermont dirt roads that only seem to go uphill, a little bit of pavement here and there, like, like anything and everything will be there on the bike. Um, paddling. It's, it's great. You look at Vermont, you can be on big, wide open lakes. You can be on rivers that have a bunch of current, rivers that don't have a lot of current. And I'm not going to say much about the paddle because we've got some really varied, very different options all within range of this 30-hour course. Um, the other thing, and this is, this is news that some of you will be hearing for the first time, this race will have a sizable swim. There will be roughly a kilometer of open water swimming, PFP-assisted <laughs> open water swimming. This is going to generate, Garrison, I've already talked about, dozens and dozens of questions. Can we bring this? Can we do this? How do we do this? Where do we stage our gear? Do, 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 do. We're not releasing any of that quite yet. We are telling you there will be a roughly kilometer open water swim as part of the race at some point. Um, more details will come ahead, but I think Brian, that's from a quick overview of sort of how people should think about it, how I'm thinking about it. That's the high level overview of the course. That's the most important three minutes of the podcast right now. Such a high that's level right. overview. So thank you very much. So thanks for being here, folks. Have a nice day. Um, <laughs> digging a bit into the specifics of the course. How long is nationals? How long is the course open for everybody? So 30 hours, 30 hours of racing. We're, we're designing the ideally lead teams and obviously it's weather dependent because that can swing a lot, but lead teams coming in somewhere between 20, 24, maybe 25 hours, something in that range. Once you factor in Vermont in mid September, uh, it could be 80 degrees and beautiful. It could be 50 degrees and raining. Uh, night could be even colder. That variation of what to expect. Um, will affect how fast teams can move. If we get a couple inches of rain a couple days before, the woods will be slower going, those technical trails will be slower going, and that will that will affect that overall timing. And I think that's a fair point to make, and I, I'll point this out to the listener at home, and, and Chris, I want you to, to, to push back and correct my statement in any way, because I spent time yeah. in Vermont, I've done some racing up there, I've done some trekking up there. The, the variability in the terrain combined with the weather, the undergrowth, the brush, means that it's not like they're racing across, say, a desert, where the desert is a desert is a desert, right? It's, or they're racing across wide open plains because of the way Vermont is laid out, because the the topography and the undergrowth and the brush. Does, it's very important for the racer to pay attention to all of those factors leading up to the race, including has it been a really wet summer because there might be more undergrowth, things like that. Talk a bit about the, the the spectrum, if you will, for the person at home who's getting ready for nationals, who's coming into the area, right? Vermont flying into New England. Talk a bit about like how wide is that spectrum between all of those different factors? Because people have to be prepared for really anything coming their way. What should they be focusing on? Yeah, the biggest thing to pay attention to the week ahead, ahead of time is what's the temperature going to be like? Like what kind of gear, how much clothing, how, how ready are you to 
I mean, if we get a real cold snap, it could be in the 30s at night. And if it's raining and in the 30s at night, teams are going to have to manage that and have the gear to manage that, have the willpower and fortitude to manage that. It could also be 85 during the day and hot and sunny. And so that temperature range is the biggest. I would say the, the rain factor is the second. After that, we could have thunderstorms that blow through in the middle of the course. And we'll have we'll have workarounds for the swim. We won't put you out in the swim on a, on a thunderstorm. Don't worry. Anyone is listening. We have, we have protocols in place. Those are the biggest things. Some other factors, though, to think about when you're in woods, the woods in Vermont can vary incredibly from thick spruce and pine to wide open deciduous trees where you can move really fast. Um, I was out earlier today for about five hours on a portion of the trekking. The east side of a ridge versus the west side of a ridge, what you know can be really, really different in Vermont. And that can factor in some of the local navigators will factor that into their navigation decisions in certain cases because they know, hey, based on the topography, it's going to be easier to go through the woods in this direction. And that will that will actually save them some not insignificant time. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it, it sounds like it's going to be a, a, a I'll use the term muscular. So I think it's going to be a strong course. There's going to be a lot thrown at the racers over the course of those 30 hours. There's a lot of, um, you know, the 90 percent of the trekking being off trail really speaks to navigational needs. How, good, right. how good they have to do that. Like there's there's going to be a lot that's going on there. Um, have you have you published the race start time or is that still is that under embargo? Garrison, we haven't published that yet. I don't I don't know if you're considering us 100 percent locked in on that or not. No, I mean, we've um, anything we release on the race schedule at this point in time would be with that asterisk of subject to change anyways. You know, we have our start time we've discussed and we're planning on, you know, as we get a little bit closer and tweak stuff, we may always adjust it. So feel free to share. I think they'll be excited. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna share it, but racers, this is with that caveat. We are not finalized yet, um, but we are looking at a Friday morning 9 a.m. race start. Um, currently, I know in the past some races have started 8 a.m., 7 a.m. So a little little bit more sleeping sleeping in on Friday morning, which is great. Still finishing, you know, middle of the day in sunlight on Saturday. Gotcha, and that's Friday, September 15th. Am I correct? That is correct. So it's also it's payday. Good job, everybody. Your your bank <laughs> accounts will be filled. <laughs> that's right because we never talk about the course of venture racing and we never will and but on top of that it's great that that morning at nine o'clock at the start but that plays a role for the racer because if it's a 30-hour race they have a full day of racing right then they go they have that one long night they have 24 hours and then obviously they have the morning and the, a touch of the afternoon of the second day so it's so and that depends like if you started at 11 o'clock on a friday night that would change the whole calculus right so so nine o'clock on a friday morning want to emphasize on behalf of USARA and Jimara that the idea that that is a tentative start time. There's do, do not send us any nasty grams if all of a sudden nine o'clock becomes eight o'clock and all of a sudden your your nutritional strategies out the window. Garrison, sound like you want to say something. Go ahead. Well, well Brian, you mentioned 11 p.m. start time. Is is Brian Gatens, are you officially suggesting a USARA consider an 11 p.m. start <laughs> with a 30-hour race? To make teams race through two nights, I absolutely. Do. I think this is this is nationals. This is keep in mind that I'm like uh, this is the the football fantasy version of race directing, right? We all get to sit home and sort of make things up. But I will tell you that I did a uh, a Naira New York Adventure Racing Association race one time where we started eleven o'clock on a Friday night, so you had the added benefit of an entire day of work. Then a travel on a Friday night in the on the East Coast, which is like getting from nowhere to nowhere. Welcome to 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 you know population congestion, and getting in a bus at eleven o'clock at night. And that was the race where they spit us out into an empty field, gave us our maps, and drove away. So that was actually a great experience. So I don't want to do that to the racers. Nine o'clock start Friday morning on the fifteenth. Great great timing. You know, race through those that one long night, and that's a good thing for those racers. Garrison, we're bringing it down to you a little bit. Thank you, Chris, for that high-level overview. We're going to come back to you in a second. Great. Harrison, from a, a USARA perspective in terms of the, the race preparation, in terms of the teams of registration, talk a bit about how it's all coming together from a really high-level perspective. Yeah, we had uh, tremendous interest in this year's race, which was anticipated. Um, maybe not the volume of interest or the uh, how much interest there was in registration the day that it opened, uh, I think most people are aware at this point, but for those that aren't, um, last year when we were out in California, we had all kinds of conversations about how to, to do registration and had settled on 
an open registration because when we looked at the last year or two, it ultimately who got in would have worked out the same, whether it be a qualification structure or open. So he said, you know, it's it's hard enough to get to nationals and race uh, and then do the race. Um, let's let's do open registration and simplify it for everybody. Work great. Um, coming back to the East Coast, um, if you work backwards from 2023, so 2022 was in California, not easy to get to from the East Coast. Uh, 2021 uh, was Wisconsin, also not super easy to get to from the East Coast. That's a it's a healthy drive or a couple of flights. Uh, 2020 virtual because of you know COVID. Uh, in 2019, we were in North Carolina. So we have three you know, four years of pent-up demand on the East Coast to race nationals. And so when that registration opened, um, there was a huge rush of interest. And we worked through the uh, the wait list. We've got all the teams registered and signed up right now with a few slots left for our regional championship races. I think there's seven left. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um and we had a few teams, you know, back out. So the first few teams on that wait list um, that didn't get a spot initially, uh, they'll be getting notified here the next day or two that they've earned a spot as well. So um, we're going to have a full 66 team field um, with the course that Chris put together. You know, he was asked to showcase Vermont, you know, show us what Vermont has to offer. And I think he he can speak to this, but I think he even held back a couple things the last couple of years and hasn't put them in a race because he's been thinking, ooh, this is a good thing to to use for like a nationals type race. Um, you know, we got as many as many teams of the field as we could. And um, yeah, so with with the amount of interest that there is, there's gonna be two hundred racers out there, um, hopefully not getting too lost in the woods over thirty hours. I want to put a plug in for Yishai Horowitz, which is the dark zone number forty one. One of our more popular episodes, Gisha did a great job talking about California, talking about the course itself. Obviously, very, very well received, very, very popular nationals. Wisconsin was very popular. You know, 2020, we'll leave that one in the dust. Enjoyed myself personally into 2019 and down in Boone. So obviously the pinnacle of the, the season comes together there. You mentioned 66 teams. You mentioned high demand coming into the East Coast. Um, and clearly, energy is 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 gathering behind adventure racing. I will tell you that we see it ourselves with the dark zone. Um, we don't talk a lot about our numbers. We don't talk a lot about our, our listenership, but we're growing steadily over time, which obviously, you know, there's a lot of great things going on in adventure racing with adventure racing world series, the work that Heidi Muller is doing internationally, USARA having so many races this year, the, the, all the championship series. Garrison, talk a bit out loud, if you will, about the, the the state of adventure racing in America right now. You know, nothing super official. Don't go too deep on it. You know, this is not an analysis of the sport itself. But I know the listeners are really interested um, in how adventure racing is doing overall in the U.S. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, it's been interesting, you know, getting involved. Um, you know, we took over in August of 2020, which was kind of peak pandemic, if you will, or, or relatively close to it. Um, and then within a month, um, you know, Eco Challenge had gotten released on Amazon Prime. Huge spike in interest, all kinds of questions. You know, everybody wanted to try this out. And depending on where you were, you know, permitting and putting on races was impractical to impossible. So it was really, it was cool to see the interest. It was kind of a heartbreak to see the inability to supply any races to all those people that were interested. But I got to say, the interest carried over. Um, really strongly as races started up again for the races that I was at, like in 2021, 2022, um, the race directors that said, Hey, show your hands. If you're a first time racer, there was a lot, you know, a lot of interest. And some even asked like those of you who saw the TV show on Amazon prime, is that why you're here? You know, and you'd see some hands up for that. Um, and as the, 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 those of us that may have a little bit more gray than not in our, you know, hair on our head or on our faces, we were, you can recall that there was a period when uh, adventure racing was on TV. You know, you were either on into adventure racing because you saw it or your friend saw it. There was like a one degree of separation from that. So we got a nice little bump from that. But it's not just televised adventure racing that, that's kept the interest high. It's kind of uh, that momentum has has kept up. I've had a number of conversations with people that have wanted to get into race directing all across the country, which has been, you know, fantastic. People asking about camps and clinics and what do I do? How do I get started? How do I learn? And, you know, you know, USARA's purpose as a governing body of a small niche sport like ours isn't just on kind of the governing side. We look at it as our responsibility to take care of the sport itself. 
And we do that as best we can by connecting the parties that are interested. So whether it be race directors in a particular region or somebody who hears about adventure racing with a friend and just reaches out to us and say, hey, I want to do this. You know, the first thing we do is say, here's the race directors and the events in your area. Go check out, connect with them. Here's our stuff that we have on the website for new racers. Let us know what else you need. You know, we try and this community is so welcoming. You know, it's really the, the lift for us isn't the hard part. It's just kind of connecting those new interested people with the people that are already involved uh, and are part of the community. So, so yeah, it's, an, it's encouraging. In fact, I've got a, a, a call um, in the next day or two with a, a city that's looking at bringing an adventure race to the area as, as part of something they do through their kind of chamber of commerce type thing. So um, the word is out and we're going to keep doing what we can to promote the sport you know, in a perfect world. I think I said this before. Um, everybody at least knows what adventure racing is. And so race directors like Chris don't have to spend as many resources on explaining the sport sport. I get that wrong every time explaining the sport. Um, they can spend their resources on, uh, promoting their events, you right. know? And, and so that's when you look at the area of kind of public education, if you will, um, that's, that's a major, major goal for, for us area. I agree, I agree all around with that. And, you know, that the main through line of the dark zone has always been about exposing adventure racing to the world, right. And yeah. bringing on the, and bringing on the stories and the listeners and getting people involved and making it an open and welcoming experience. So we appreciate your, your stewardship there. Chris, pivoting back to, to Jumara, pivoting back to the, the work that you're doing, getting nationals together. As the race director yourself, and having put on a lot of races, what is the, the the part of the race right now that's kind of keeping you up at night the most? What's the one thing that you say to yourself, like, I'm an RD? And this question is for the RDs out there and the aspiring race directors. Uh, if you go back a few episodes ago, we talked to two gentlemen putting on their first race ever, just west of Nashville. So for the race director out there, the person who looks at the maps and lives near an area. Talk a bit about race directing, getting nationals ready. And like, what is kind of keeping you preoccupied? For most races, the biggest primary concern is do the permits and the private landowner permissions come together? You can have multiple times. I've had what I felt was a great shell of a course and I can't secure permission to use an integral part and I have to reroute and do something totally different. So the nationals course we're using now is actually what we started with this course B. We knew this going in well enough that, hey, you don't always get the things you want. We're going to kind of model two courses out of the gate. It's not B like it was the second better one. We said A and B. And um, A didn't materialize. And then we were all in on, on plan B. And I think that happened roughly six months ago because um, we've been working on this for a while. And so, you know, I think we still have a couple permissions to finalize. I'll breathe easier once those are 100% done and I can work around them, but I, I really like the version that I can do if, if they come through. And then I think honestly, the overall thing we're still working through is timing. We're still scouting some sections. We're still fine tuning. And then it's getting the good timing on everything. So we can set cutoffs appropriately, right? There's going to be a wide range of skills of people in this, in this race. We're going to have some of the top 10 teams in the U S some of the top teams in the world, essentially racing here. And then we're going to have folks that are doing their first overnight race. And that is that is a span of teams. So I'm designing a course that ideally takes at least 22 hours for that first team to finish, but that a, a team that you know is a back of the pack team that makes some good decisions along the way can can decide to drop some points or reroute and still finish arrive at the finish under their own power. If had a great experience, not feel shortchanged, and provide that great experience across the spectrum. It might. So there's always the debate in, in course design and course direction, the idea of being point to point versus point coming out, doing a loop of some sort, getting back on the course. Are you ready to talk a bit about that version of the race? Like what would a schematic look like right now? Or is that still, we still months away from releasing that publicly? I'm not going to release anything about the actual course publicly. I can share a little bit about my personal philosophy, mm -hmm. which is generally some of that comes down to the nature of the course and the experience. So I have put on race courses that are more point to point, And I put some on that, that do have more sections of you arrive. And then there's a whole sea of points and get them in any order and come back and then maybe continue on your bike. And I think some of the best courses actually employ a bit of blend of both because then you can still have that point to point feel. I am, I am traversing across a wide swath of land or the state of Vermont. And I feel like I have traveled a great distance 
But as long as there's some sections along the way where you can spread out and go get things and, and maybe come back, that offers some opportunity to drop points. It lets us keep the group uh, a little tighter and add in some of those things. You you There's some of the benefits of having loops and things where you can do some things and return to a central point. So um, maybe it's a little rambly, but essentially I think I don't think it has to be a true binary either or. I think there are ways to pull some of the best pieces of both to create a great experience for the racer. And I think what makes that important too, and I, I love the fact that we're we're talking about the, that nationals will host the, some of the top teams, the heavy hitters, right? The they they'll be there, and they'll be prepared to tackle the course in twenty twenty two hours and go for that. But then, by virtue of how the registration process works, by virtue of who gets to take part in it, there will be some teams there that are taking a, a swing at a really big pitch for a, a really important race that has a lot of attention on it and their experience level may still be on the newer side and they have to grow into that and if i hear you correctly and i want you to talk a bit more about this in theory you could have a team that's on the newer side be on the course and be somewhere in the course and have the chance to make an on-course decision about the route they want to take the checkpoints they want to go to like so while the stakes are high they have a lot of choice out there about the decisions they want to make navigationally am i hearing that correctly a hundred percent correctly. Part of um, racers attacking a course, the strategic decisions come down to them deciding, hey, I think these points are too far out. I don't think these two points are worth the time. Let's drop those. So later or over here, we can grab these three or four points or we can go make that cutoff because we want to finish under our own power. Yeah, we're not moving as fast as those leaders. So let's 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 short course ourselves on this section or this part and then continue on the main race course. So there'll be a lot of options for that. Because if you think about it, if like the best teams in the world are going to take 22 hours, we're going to have a whole lot of teams that will not clear the course in 30. Lots of teams are going to have to make strategic and tactical decisions around which part of the course to attack and go after to achieve the best result. So I want to come back to you on that clearing the course question, because we have a lot of newer listeners that come into the adventure racing through the dark zone. I have to explain that part of it. If you come into adventure racing through an endurance sports perspective, right, marathoning, triathlon, whatever it might be, you're used to the idea of that you only win or you complete the course if you start at one point and do everything and get to another point. And then there's clearing the course, first getting the mandatories and the optionals. For the newer racer at home, Chris, can you talk a bit about what that means to clear the course versus getting the, the mandatories? Yeah. So when, when the racers start the race, there is a set number of, of checkpoints, um, transition areas, places teams need to go to. You get a detailed set of race instructions and it tells you what you need to do. If you clear the course, it means you did all of the things. You went to every single spot the race organizers had put out there for you to find, for you to navigate to, any um, unique task they had you do. You did it and you've done it all. You cleared the course, you get to the finish. And as long as you cleared it and got there first, you win. That being said, um, there's the the spectrum of teams can vary quite a bit, and racers race organizers generally want to provide really good experiences to the teams that aren't as fast. I think some of the early school adventure races, you had to make it to points by a set time, or you were just out of the race. It, and and there's folks that loved that. It was real. It was intense. You had to make it. The pressure was on, and if you did, it felt great. But then you had a lot of teams that didn't have a great experience. Like they went into this really long race and maybe only made it a quarter of the way through. They made a nav mistake. They had a gear issue and then they're done. And that isn't, I think is welcoming. I think there's a place for some races to still do that if they're really clear about it, but more races are moving to a format where teams um, more near the back of the pack can make good decisions around, Hey, which points are we going to get? Or, um, you know, we have to leave this TA by this time to stay on the course. How many can we get in that window? And do we even want to leave a little early so we have some some buffer later on in the course? And they'll get to make all those decisions. Um, you know, probably in most of the races I put on, maybe only 10 to 20% of teams, if that clear the course, most of the rest of the rankings come down to who makes the best decisions about their day and can get through as much of it in the best way with the best nav decisions as they can and finish. And that means most teams are out there for the full time, close to the full time. You get at least 20 hours of racing in, but a lot more teams are going to get close to 30 hours of racing. And from a, and from a explaining perspective, if you're on a course and if you hit all the mandatories on the course and you finish the race, you've completed the course. You have a, you have a score and a ranking. If you've missed a mandatory, you move into an unranked 
listing, right? So, so if it, it's hard when you're new a racer when you see the, the the spreadsheet at the end of a race because there's all these different categories of who won and what what grade level, what a uh, what different um uh, three racers versus two racers versus co-ed versus mixed. And so you're right. So there's a lot to figure out there. But I just really want to underline for the newer racer that going to a race, getting the mandatories, and for some races, the mandatories are minimal. You only need to cover so much of the race and you finish inside the race director's time. Congratulations, you're a finisher of that adventure race. We could almost do an entire episode of The Dark Zone just talking about all the little niche peculiarities of adventure racing. Garrison, pivoting over to you in terms of nationals being the USARA's premier event of the year and the evolution of how the race grows and there's more interest and there's more people want to do it. How is how are they going to evolve over time as interest increases? What's your gut telling you right now? Well, you know, our, one of our purposes as an organization is to help determine the best team in the country, the national champion for any given year. And as Chris pointed out when he was talking about his course, um, you've got a wide range of skills and abilities. Now, with it being the national championship, we do have a little bit more density, if you will, at the top of the field, which is great. But the there's still all the way down to maybe their, their first overnight race. If we continue to see this increase in interest and the overall skill level of the field escalates and improves as you'd expect, um, you know, we'll start to turn up, if you will, things on the national championship a little bit. Um, not saying anything definitively right now, but based on this year's interest, um, there's a decent to strong chance somewhere in there that will you go back to a qualification system for next year? Um, in which case, you know, you've got teams that have demonstrated some level of skill and ability. And, and, and depending on what that looks like, you know, we, we want to challenge those top teams with a hard course. Um, I forget which race director I worked with in the past, but we don't want to cross that line into what I've heard called stupid hard. You know, that's what I was told. Like, we want to make it hard. We don't want to make it stupid hard. You know, stupid hard always heard and defined as like, we're just going to grind people down because we can as opposed to how oh, we could make them go over or around or through this thing. That's really cool, but it's going to be really hard. That's what you want to do, right? You want a challenge that people feel like they accomplished something after they did it. So yeah, as the overall skill level and ability of the field uh, continues to improve in coming years, you know, we'll start turning the dial up. Um, we got to be a little bit careful now because if we designed a course that clearing, getting every single checkpoint available, for the top team took 28 to 30 hours, the types of things you'd have to design into the course to get that less experienced team with the finish line feeling like they did something fulfilling and enjoyable gets really tough. You know, either they get stuck with a big long bike or miss a section entirely or something like that. So um, I think what Chris has put together is a pretty phenomenal balance for this year. And I think that pretty much no matter what, people are going to walk away uh, hopefully feeling like they got the rear ends kicked a little bit, but also having had a good time. Yeah, you know, there's the the, the idea of the Goldilocks moment, right? The, the course just has to be just hard enough, but also just reachable enough. And there's that, that Venn diagram that kind of comes together and what's right there, because you don't want to... To your point, and, and race directors, and, and I just want to put a plug in for race directors a, a across the country and actually across the world, the more and more that we follow on Instagram, we follow on Facebook, what race directors are doing. Most race directors, by the way, are citizen race directors. You know, they have daytime jobs. They don't do this full time. If you can do it full time and you can, God bless you. It's a great way to make a living in, in many ways. But if a lot of folks, they work a day job and on their nights and their weekends, they're spending five hours in the woods and they're doing this because they love the sport. The quality of the of the courses that we're seeing over and over again is is really really strong, and I think the credit to that. And, and Chris, I want you to talk a bit about this: is race directors working with race directors to get feedback on thoughts on what's working and not working. In terms of your evolution as a race director, Chris, how heavily have you relied upon the other directors around the world, around the country, around the region? How has that worked out for you? Quite well. I think I've, I've been really fortunate that in New England, um, Cliff and Kate White have come in over in Maine and they they came there, they raced a couple of our races and we bounce ideas back and forth all the time. Uh, we occasionally notice elements of one of our races show up in the other person's race and that's great. A lot of times what I do is when I have other race directors come in and race my race, I ask them afterwards, what was the experience like? What would you have done differently? What didn't you like? It's easy to talk about the good stuff. Often we know what this is, but like, hey, what are the little things we could tweak and do better to make for a better experience? And 
they're all, I don't think I've hit a single one yet who hasn't wanted to be helpful because we all want the sport to grow. We all want all the events to be better. It's not like if folks in Maine put on a really good race, that's going to hurt teams coming to mind. We just want more teams going to more races in general. So super great community. I agree. I agree. From a volunteer perspective, I've been involved in the Endless Mountains Adventure Race with Rootstock Racing over the last two years. And even I've seen how that's evolved over time, you know, putting on a five-day race, putting on a, a race of any distance is challenging. But definitely as the race director grows and gets better, you can really see how the the, the races themselves really welcome people. And then we have the eagle all over the country. There's just so many good race directors out there doing such a good job for so many people. And I, we encourage people to travel to races and do things like that. So we're, we're, we're blessed in that way. Speaking logistics, Garrison, popping down to you for a second. If, if I am thinking about um, racing and someone's coming out there, logistically speaking, where do they where do they fly into? How do they move their gear around? What is that? Have you released those details yet to the racer? Because we all know, and I can hear the heads nodding around the world when I say this. Sometimes the hardest part of a race is actually getting to the start line with your teammates, your gear, your bikes, your food, and your brain all in one place. So logistically speaking, Garrison, what does it look like? Not only is it the hardest part, it sometimes ends up with the most entertaining stories as long as you're not the one suffering through whatever travel mishap has put your bike in one country and your gear we, we had another. we had a guy in our adventure race croatia his bike yeah. was, his gear was across three airlines in two countries and he still raced but like you yeah. read the facebook post and your heart dropped for the guy yeah yeah so um yeah we do have it on the website um i'll let chris confirm the the airport we have the airport on there with the kind of travel times yeah we got all this stuff for the host uh hotel and i we're within a yard or less of confirming a bike shop. Um, we'll have that information out as soon as we get it confirmed. But Chris, you want to confirm the airport? Yeah, so you'll find a Burlington International Airport. It's the primary airport in northern Vermont. Um, you'll head to Smuggler's Notch Resort. It's it's just about an hour or just under an hour drive from there. It's not too bad. Um, and then uh, bike shop details coming soon. So it should be pretty easy on the drive to the resort. People will see some of the terrain around them and get a sense for what they have potentially in store for them. At least some of it will be somewhere along the drive. It's um, it's it's a pretty cool drive. What's the rough plan for the at-home experience, Garrison? Will you have media on site tracking? I mean, I know there will be tracking. Who's doing your tracking for you? Like what, what is the, because there's a part of it and, and, and Chris willing, God willingly, you're not involved in this part of it. You're the RD, right? You have, you have 66 teams. They're now your children. Welcome to, welcome to the family. You care about them. But then what we find is I like to say the term, the circus is coming to town, right? The, the media, the, the, who's on site, the tracking, the website, the commentary, how is that going to come together, Garrison? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's good because we've, we've been exploring and trying new things the past couple of years. Um, obviously if we had our way, we would be able to bring the race in extremely clear detail to every single friend, family, and coworker of every racer that's out there and provide this overwhelming amount of media for all the racers after the race. Um, that's tricky to do. Uh, so we'll definitely have the tracking will be through enabled tracking with Mark Harris. Again, he does a phenomenal job. Um, I don't, yeah, I'm trying to think, um, last year we had a, pretty interesting and kind of cool scenario where we had two sections of course um, that didn't have cellular service. And for those listeners that aren't familiar with how the tracking works, um, it records the location of the tracker for each team on, via GPS pretty much always. You got to get pretty thick stuff or, or out of the way before the GPS part gives out, but it shares that information via cell signal. So last year, we had uh, two sections of course where there was no cell, but there was GPS. So teams like the top five teams all went in there and disappeared within 30 minutes of each other. And then it was like three to three and a half hours to see who came out when in what order. Um, so that was kind of fun for our media team to, to talk about and, and conjecture on um, this year. The theme that we're approaching the race with is the racer experience. You know, we really want it to be um the focus to be on the racers for the race. So obviously we are going to have the tracking, but our initial media efforts are first and foremost on what the racers get out of it. And then we'll work on the most efficient way to talk about the race and, and broadcast the race, if you will, to um, the people watching from home. It's, it's been interesting watching the evolution of kind of race broadcasting, if you will, 
the last couple of three years as the technology's improved, more people involved, more people trying new things. Um, and you mentioned being involved with Endless Mountains last year. If you're doing the right things over a four to six day race, you can really build some momentum and interest, not just in the people at home and friends of people that are racing, but like actual local communities. Um, because you got a few days to kind of catch that traction and garner that interest and, and build it up. It's, a, it's, it's, as most would expect, it's tricky to compress that down to 30 hours. So you will do what we can to communicate to the local community, like, Hey, this is what we're doing. You know, be excited about it. Um, and then we'll have the the tracking along with some, uh, commentary and ideally what I love doing. And this is a niche market for this or a niche audience, if you will. But, um, I love the dot watching analysis and trying to conjecture what in the bleep are going through people's heads, uh, when the dots are doing things you don't expect, but, uh, may have a few volunteers kind of help us out with that. Cause I personally always enjoy it. I, I pay close attention to a lot of the tracking that goes on a lot of ultra events. Like there was a race out in Arizona, Cocodona. I apologize to the Cocodonians if I'm pronouncing that wrong. They did a really good job having people on the course and they used Starlink and they had GPS and they, and they really worked hard. It was a 250 mile race, I believe. Once again, I apologize if I got that wrong. And over the course of the days of that race, they were able to create a multi-day narrative like Endless Mountains did last year. You know, the great story we always tell is that at one point in those mountains, a, a team went into a store to buy something and the and the people in the store said, well, just take it. It's a gift. We've had a great time following you guys online yeah. this entire week. So you're right. That's and cool. I think to your point, it's for a 30 hour race, which ironically enough is, is on the shorter side, right? How long races could go and people don't adventure race. They think 30 hours is very long and shorter. It's tough to get that media energy going around it right and and how many people could actually be out there garrison yeah yeah i mean it's it's one thing to get the media interest in it too but something to consider and and we'll communicate this to all our racers of which we'll have 198 of them um since it starts on a friday the advantage is a lot of people are at work and i'm not going to imply that not everybody's you know working all the time at work but some people may have the opportunity to to sneak a tab open, you know, and follow the tracking for the race as opposed to on a Saturday when you may have friend or family obligations or travel or whatever. So, you know, we'll make sure that we have all the information necessary to follow along to all the racers before they all start their travel to Vermont. And then we'd encourage them to share it with as many people as as possible. So if I hear you correctly, you're saying that the why we would never endorse this as a method, that it's really good for someone to block out a meeting and say nine o'clock to five o'clock that Friday. They're just busy in their office working hard the entire day, right? They just, I mean, they're just there. I, it is where I'm it is. not encouraging any action or another. I'm just say, saying hypothetically, that sure sounds like a possibility. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, And that's a, a fair thing that you and I just didn't say to the world. So, um, so <laughs> listening audience, do as you want with that and let your conscience be your guide. Um, open the tab, enjoy the race, cheer on your friends. Uh, send send a trail mail if that section is yeah. up there. Chris, you've been very generous with your time, and 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 I've been kind of poking at you a little bit, trying to get you to talk a bit more about the course <laughs> than you're supposed to. So let's let's dig into a little bit more. Yeah, I'm sitting home right now and I'm listening to this, and I'm racing nationals, and I and I and I feel that my team has a shot at doing well. What is the what are the disciplines, the traditional disciplines in adventure racing do you think someone has to hone their skills on right now? What should they focus on between now and it's it's now June of 2023 and nationals are in September? What do they have to make sharp for themselves? First and foremost, it's the it's the most traditional discipline of adventure racing, which is navigation. Specifically off trail nav in the woods. People need to be able to move through woods off trail. I'm not exaggerating when I say 90% of the trek is off trail. So if that is not people's AR experience, um, they need to get that experience fast. Secondly, I'd say, hey, if teams have never done a material swim in a race, they should practice that at least once. It'll be PFD required. They'll have their pack with them. A little bit of prep there may really help them. So if there's teams hearing this and you're nervous about that swim, good, you should be. Go solve that problem ahead of time. Don't yep. wait and be nervous in the race. And then for everything else, you know, the bike, the foot, um, there's very little in Vermont that is flat. Um, other, you know, depending on where you're coming from in the country, you can you can go 50 miles on flat and just crank through it. You, you won't get more than 50 feet here in most places that's actually flat. It'll be like weird to hit a flat spot. So practice your nav, get used to going up and down, practice that swim if you need to. Yeah, and I've, you know... Having gone over the course with Chris a couple of times, I can definitely say it's the kind of race where don't figure plan on figuring something out when you get there. 
there's some there's some beefy stuff to the race you know whether it's um figuring out how you like your paddle you know or or what you're going to do with your pfd if you're using a bladder you know don't don't do that like once you're doing a discipline you want to be doing the discipline right so obviously the navigation is super important but yeah you if you're on the bike you want to be moving if you're in the boat you want to be paddling and moving that boat as frequently we say you can't lose the race or you can't win the race always in the paddle but you can certainly lose it if you're not actually moving the boat um so yeah it's it's you're going to have to put in some work um, and put in some work in the right direction. So yeah, that, you, you're, you remind me of a great line that Adrian Crane had in his episode was it's not how fast you go when you're fast, how fast you go when you're slow. Yeah, and if you're not cool. moving at all, you got trouble. Chris, what do you think? The one other comment, if the astute folks are picking up on this, I'm going to help the ones who hadn't folks are some folks are already noticing. I'm not talking about the paddle much, and that is intentional. Uh, I'm not giving away the nature of the paddle, the duration of the paddle. Um, there are different kinds of water in Vermont and it ranges considerably. So you will have a paddle. Teams that can paddle better will make significantly better time. That's a generic statement about almost any course. Um, but I am, I just want to recognize that I'm being ambiguous there on purpose. I don't want to believe the obvious, Chris, but I think with the the one kilometer paddle, a one kilometer swim, thank you. Look at the Freudian slip there with it. Feels like it should be a paddle. It's actually a swim. <laughs> the swim, the fact that it's a full immersion with PFDs, let's underline that for the safety director, um, with their with their their packs, their dry bags, all their equipment, teams are going to be expected to manage being wet. And that's about foot care. That's about, you know, changing clothes and things like that. What other things do teams have to really focus on in terms of you think like nutrition, foot care, all the the big box stuff we talk about? Um, teamwork, like where do you really see there being a pinch point for teams and really struggling in the race if they're not careful? The biggest you touched on already, right? Um, getting fully wet, gear wet. If we get a colder day, right? If we have that day where it's 45 and, and rainy or heading into the night, right? It's it's 30 and rainy. Um, folks are soaked from their swim. If they are not prepped to deal with that as a team, they're going to be in trouble. And that's really, that's probably the most concerning part, even for me as a, as a race director on the swim. Okay, a thunderstorm, we can watch the weather report and see it's coming and, and route around it. But if it's cold, we're still going to do that swim. The teams know it's coming, right? We're right. Not, unless, unless like all of a sudden uh, the world freezes and it's 20 below, maybe we won't. But that's going to be part of the course. And teams that are not prepared, if we get a colder day, there'll be teams that drop out. There'll gotcha. be teams that you know don't take care of their feet because they've been wet. Um, that And that's one of the reasons people need to practice the swim. What are you doing? Is all your stuff going to go in a big bag and float behind you? Are you just wearing your pack on your back? That Those are open questions. We'll see teams doing everything, but folks need to know going in what that's going to be, or they're going to spend 20 plus minutes in transition time getting into the water and another 20 minutes getting out. Gotcha. Three. And so that's the other factor. If they haven't prepped for their swim, they're going to burn at least half an hour just navigating those TAs. Gotcha. Gotcha. And credit to you, to, to your point that you're not sneaking up on them. That right. Finding out early here, it's June now, the race is in September. It's going to be in your your written, what you send out to them. So there is no great surprise coming. And I do like the idea that you've, you're giving them advance notice of a certain skill set because a swim like that with gear is a skill set, right? You have to be able to manage that kind of swim. And now your time to go practice it and get ready for that. Um, yeah. It sounds like that's the only really... Um, I'm going to use the word novel. That's not the right word to use, but the only novel thing you're throwing at them during the race. It sounds like a, a burly course, a lot of terrain, a lot of challenge. The swim is is unique in that respect. You don't see that in every single race. We've seen it in races before. It's not uncommon. Is there anything else that that I'm missing that that the the dark zone could emphasize? Things that you want to underline for the racer? No, we are we are focused primarily on the classical disciplines, right? And so there's. Um, we're not sharing any details of any uh, ropes elements. There's no surprise challenges we have planned at this time. This really will come down to, hey, can you run a clean adventure race? Can you do it well? Can you nav? Can you do the disciplines? And when I started in the sport, I did a lot more of my racing up in Canada. And swimming is a much bigger, or at least at the time, was a much bigger component of the races there. And most of the, out of the first 10 races I did, probably seven or eight of them had a swim. 
So for me, that is a core discipline, even if in the US it's not as, as common or as common anymore. But that was my co-designer, Jim and I, which shout out to Jim, he's awesome. A lot of this is his fault. So you all cannot just thank me, but him too. Um, he was really passionate coming in about having a quality swim that mattered. And we found one and it was super exciting. And just to save uh, some email communication in the next month or so, um, as we get closer to the race, but with plenty of time out ahead of the race, we won't be telling people kind of when they'll be swimming. Chris has already shared roughly how long the swim is. We will be providing more details about like the things that you can use and the parts of the course immediately around it. So, you know, if you want to, if you really like, um, what do they call those things? Water wings that you put in your arms, the little floaties, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to, bring floaties this is when you have to carry them and roughly how long and stuff like that so we will give teams the information they need to make decisions uh but more specifically we'll be saying like you know outboard motors not allowed things like that um so we will answer those questions so you can save yourself an email uh, uh, right after listening to this <laughs> we know what you're thinking uh we've met adventure racers we are adventure racers we know everybody's immediately thinking what's my competitive advantage here We'll give you more parameters on that, uh, so there's no surprises. If I could yeah, stick it, whether or not I actually tell you how long it is before or after that, I mean, Garrison and I have to negotiate those kinds of details. They should just be prepared to carry the stuff they want on the swim with them part of the day. Well, yeah, yeah, you may not get like specific distances, but like, you know, we're not going to not tell people that oh yeah if you bring the outboard motor you got to carry it for 30 hours or for whatever so um, i would i would love for a team to bring an outboard motor and try right? that, that would be i would almost make that legal provided they carry the entire race <laughs> <laughs> that's right feel free to bring it yeah. good luck yeah to kind of double down on what, what chris was saying we will give you as little information as we need to to make sure that you know what you need to know to be ready for the race our goal is sure. not to like make this a trick or make it luck that people happen to show up with with or without something um but we also don't want to you know give away everything in in june yeah and once again that's the idea of the goldilocks that there's you want to give just enough information that they're prepared for the race but not so much that they're over prepared because like i've said before this really isn't like another endurance event there should be a level of uncertainty that the racer and the team have to deal with during the course of the race whether it be route choice whether it be how they want to tackle something what they want to eat what they want to bring things like that i think that's a, an important thing to, to to bring alive what do you want to say out loud here to save you the, the the emails that will be arriving from the racers what does the timeline look like for the release of information yeah so we um have wrapped up the processing of of the wait list which i think i mentioned before everybody knows um, everybody who has a spot currently knows and the teams that are on the wait list know in what order that they're on that wait list. So that piece of work is done. Uh, this week we'll be sending something out and I think it'll come out immediately before around the same time that you put this podcast up, which is kind of a lot of the stuff we talked about, you know, on this, on this podcast, which is some of the general, uh, course details, uh, we'll be fleshing out the logistics a little bit more on the website and sharing that in the next week or two, uh, making sure people know roughly at least, you know, this is the time you need to show up for registration, race start, race finish, awards, et cetera, et cetera. So people can figure out their travel plans and stuff like that, especially for those teams that may be flying. They they need that information so they can make absolutely sure that they're not, you know, booking a flight at 2 p.m. on Saturday for some reason, um, which that's no fun because you don't get to hang out and and, and and party and drink maple syrup with us after the race. Yeah, and I'm assuming you want people to do that, right? It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a lot together. Sure. Like they want, they should be around Saturday night. Like if you're going to fly home, try to fly home sometime on Sunday, right? That would yep. be, you know, it's every team has different challenges. Logistically, people have to get home, they have to go to work, things like that. So we recognize that, but we always encourage teams in all the races that we I've been involved with and I've seen I've been into. Do your best to kind of spare the time because we all know that aside from the racing itself, the second best part of venture racing is the post-race festivities where you're comparing notes and stories with people. It's a story-driven yeah. sport. And that's something, you know, I wish I could take credit for this shift that we've made the last couple of years and we're still tweaking it. But um, in part because of the venue that we had in Wisconsin, um, cheers to the Wisconsin people. If they see two people out in, in a field or in a lawn with a beer, the owners of the resort came out and said, Hey, you want us to open the bar for you? It's like 10 30 in the morning. 
We're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Open the bar for us. Um, <laughs> but in part because of, of the, the, the host venue, but also because of, of COVID at the time, we're like, ah, let's, let's do stuff outside if we can. Weather was phenomenal that day. And because we were doing it outside, we rolled directly from the race finish into kind of happy hour food awards. And so we had just a little bit more of a gap last year, which that it was a tough gap for some teams. Cause there's a, we had, there's some photos you can find on the website. A lot of people sleeping under picnic tables and stuff. Um, so we'll do the same thing and, and we will compress that timeline as much as reasonable. So with 30 hours, if the 9am start sticks, that's a three, 3 PM. Did I get that math right? Yeah. 3 PM cutoff. We will have had the happy hour kind of already started. We'll get the food as soon as possible after three, if not right after three, and then roll right into the awards. Because for most people, it's a lot easier to kind of finish and then just keep going, power through for another couple hours, and then get that shower and, you know, hit the sack. Um, gotcha. Now, obviously, if you want to finish in 22 to 24 hours, that's on you. Then you got to go shower, take a nap, and come back and wake yep. back up again. But, you know, I, they probably won't complain. I, I, a lot of the teams that I know and love that I race with, we make to take full, full use of the whole course. We go the full yeah. 30 hours, right? That's Get your the money's worth. <laughs> exactly. If I'm going to be out there, I'll be out there the entire time. Chris, I want to bring it over to you to sort of, to bring us home and to wrap it up a little bit. What do you want to, what thoughts do you want to leave the listener with about nationals? Uh, I just want people to get excited about coming to Vermont, seeing what this course has to offer, what the area has to offer. Some of my longstanding volunteers getting to be involved with the national championships. It's very cool for all these folks who worked hard for a long time. So, hey, folks, in closing, go practice those things I told you to. And afterwards, you'll come up to me and say, you were exactly right. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you. There you have it, folks. Nationals 2023 right around the corner. Thank you to Chris Yeager and Garrison for joining us and talking all things Nationals. Practice that swimming with your pack and your gear and your teammates and your PFD. Everyone out there, keep racing, keep having fun. Tell those stories. Make those stories. If you like what you hear today, please head over to your streaming platform of choice and like click and rate. The algorithm likes that when that happens. Once again, thanks for being a listener. Be safe and have fun out there. Pennies in a stream Falling leaves, a sycamore, moonlight in Vermont, icy finger waves, ski trails on a mountainside. No light in Vermont Telegraph cables They sing down the highway And travel each bend in the road People who meet In this romantic setting are so hypnotized by the lovely evening summer breeze warbling of a meadow love moonlight in Vermont
telegraph cables how they sing down the highway and they travel each bend in the road people who meet in this romantic setting are so hypnotized by the lovely evening summer breeze the warbling of a meadow love moonlight in Vermont Yeah.